Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 100. How cool is that? I mean, if this was a podcast about dogs, maybe not such a big deal. But this is a centennial show, and this is episode number 100. And just to give you a heads up about the coming weeks, this week and next week is a two-part special where we're focusing on the near-term fallout of the armistice as everyone tries to come to terms and grips with a world suddenly not at war. It's the dawn of a new world order and really tumultuous. Then, for episode number 102 coming out the weekend of December 22nd, We have a treat for you, an update of our annual period Christmas music that you can enjoy over the holidays. This next part's really fun. The following two episodes, we're going to reprise your favorite segments and interviews from 2018. And you're invited to participate. Send us a direct message to our Twitter channel at the WW1 Podcast. That's at T-H-E-W-W, the number one podcast, and send us a message about a particular segment, interview, or story that you'd like to have us include in our year-end roundup. And then, starting the second week of January, we'll be getting back to our more regular programming with a 2019 update of World War I Centennial News, a shorter, tighter version of the podcast you've been enjoying. There's a lot to unpack in 2019, as the war that changed the world becomes a world transformed in so many ways. This week on the podcast, Mike Schuster has a great post-armistice overview as the Allies cross over into Germany. Dr. Glenn Prusser and Peter Francis from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission join us. That's the organization from the United Kingdom responsible for dealing with the Commonwealth's deceased soldiers. Then, Dr. Joanna Burke, professor of history at Birkbeck, University of London, joins us. She's an expert on the effects of trauma on society. Jonathan Casey, the director of archives from the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, is going to tell us about an exhibition he curated called Coming Home. On the media side, we have two great segments for you this week. Hello Girls, the musical is playing in New York City until December 22nd. We're joined by Kara Reichel and Peter Mills, the co-creators of the show. We're going to round out the show this week with a segment about director Peter Jackson's astounding film, They Shall Not Grow Old. It's scheduled to have a special U.S. showing on about a thousand screens, both in 2D and 3D, but only for two nights, ticketed through Fathom Events. The documentary is going to be showing on December 17th and again on the 27th, both an afternoon and an evening show. If you don't know about this film and you're listening to this podcast, you're really going to want to go see this. Uh, More about that later. So I had a great chat with Brent Burge from New Zealand, the man responsible for recreating the sound for this World War I historic film reconstruction. He not only talks about recording artillery from the receiving end, but also provides some great insight into Peter Jackson's vision in creating this epic and innovative documentary. It's a jam-packed week on World War I Centennial News, and I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. 
we're going to open this week with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and the curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, your post that actually ran on your blog a week ago is a really great summary for what I can only call post-armistice shock and a great opening chapter for our new theme, A World Transformed. Well, thank you, Teo. The headlines read, First Allied Troops Cross Into Germany. Americans See Germany for the First Time. Out of Balkan Minorities, A New Pan-Slav State. Wilson Sailing for Europe. And this is special to the Great War Project. On Armistice Day, November 11th, 1918, Austria was without an empire and Germany was without an emperor. So writes historian Martin Gilbert, assessing the great political changes the war had brought about. Wrote Albert Einstein from Berlin that day, militarism and bureaucracy have been thoroughly abolished here, but the tasks of the defeated nations are enormous, writes historian Martin Gilbert, combating the forces of revolution on the left and militarism on the right, reviving war-ravaged economies, maintaining national morale in the face of the stigma of defeat, the growing burden of war guilt. These are enormous tasks to confront. And there's more, a desire to recover the territories that had been ripped away at the last moment and a search for scapegoats. For the victors too, the burdens of peace are great, according to Gilbert, promises of a better life for the soldiers, but their fate is a puzzle. Writes one German general to a friend in Britain on November 11th, I don't know if I am glad or sorry to be alive, he observes as he marched his troops toward the Belgian-German frontier. I only know that it wasn't my fault that I am alive. On the morning of December 1st, writes historian Gilbert, the first British troops crossed the border into Germany, and on that same day, the first American troops crossed into Germany. They are amazed, reports Gilbert, by the contrast between the ruined villages and farms of the battle zones in northern France and the carefully cultivated fields and prosperous villages of Germany. The Allied troops themselves are tired and wet, They had marched for two weeks, mostly in the rain, to towns on the Rhine which had known nothing of war and whose inhabitants resented the arrival of a conqueror who it was increasingly believed had not defeated them in battle, but had secured an armistice as a result of their own leader's failure to avert revolution and republicanism. In Vienna, hunger quickly became a serious challenge. On the political front, several new states emerged, reported historian Martin Gilbert, on the wreckage and fragmentation of the four defeated empires, Germany, Austria, Russia, and Ottoman Turkey. On the 1st of December, a century ago, on the day when Allied troops marched into Germany, the kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was proclaimed in Belgrade. Essentially, it was a pan-Slav state, eventually becoming Yugoslavia, the inheritors of Austria's defeat. All of this is extremely confusing for the ordinary person on the street, Europe is being made over, but just how is impossible to grasp. In the meantime, the process of fashioning a fully-fledged peace treaty is now underway in Paris. On December 4th, 1918, the American president, Woodrow Wilson, set sail. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. As we've talked through the history of World War I over the last few years, the Casualty figures are staggering. Millions dead, sometimes tens of thousands in a single day of a single battle. Some 8 million soldiers died in combat or are missing in action. 
Now, that's just the combat figures. That doesn't include those who died from disease or accident. For many combatants, their dead lay in a foreign country, posing a particular challenge for England and America, who had bodies of water in between their home front and their war front. Now, next week, we'll be speaking with a representative from the American Battle Monuments Commission about how America took on this challenge. But first, this week, we're going to take a look at how the United Kingdom has dealt with this incredibly important work. And for that, we're joined by Peter Francis of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and Dr. Glenn Prosser, their chief historian. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Tim. Let me start with you, Dr. Presser. When was the commission established, and was there a wartime as well as a post-war role? Well, yes, there was. In fact, what was then called the Imperial Wargraves Commission was formally established by Royal Charter in May 1917. In fact, at one of the darkest moments of the First World War for the British Empire, at a time when actually the prospect of victory seemed very far away. But actually, its roots go back until the very beginning of the conflict, and particularly to a man called Fabian Ware, who had gone over to the Western Front in, in France with a unit of Red Cross personnel. And it became clear to him that actually there was no formal organized system for marking and registering the graves of British soldiers who'd lost their lives in that early fighting. He put pressure on the military authorities to try and get a system in place. And eventually the military took on his idea and it became an imperial project. In 1917, the king gave his royal charter to found this organization, which today is known as the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. It was starting its work during the war itself, those great battles on the Somme at Ypres. At the time, something was just beginning to try to make sure that all of those from across the British Empire who'd served and who'd fought and died in the war would be honored after the end of the fighting. Now, I understand that Rudyard Kipling was deeply involved in the formation of the commission. What was his role? As I said, you know, it's really important to think of this as an imperial body. You know, this was about the contributions from people across the British Empire. And Rudyard Kipling at the time was a key figure, in many ways, the poet of empire, well known for books like The Jungle Book, Kim, and of course, the famous poem, If, really someone who encapsulated many of the messages, the values of the British Empire at that time. And it was felt that he would be the perfect person to explain what the Wargraves Commission was doing, because at the time, it was a very new, a very unique endeavor. The idea that people from across the British Empire would be honored equally, regardless of where they came from, that was particularly important, of course, for places like India. Many Indian soldiers had come to serve on the Western Front and many other theaters of war, supporting the British Empire's war effort. So who better to tell this story, to convince people of the importance of this approach than Rudyard Kipling, who was so famous across the world. And he was used by the commission as what was then called a literary advisor. He would write in newspapers, he would write short pamphlets, uh, books to explain to people what was going on, what the plans were for their loved ones who had fallen and died during the war, how they would be honored. But also he would advise on some of the inscriptions. It was he who came up with one of the most famous inscriptions that we have on the graves of those who couldn't be identified. It just says, a soldier of the great war known unto God. That ability to encapsulate something timeless in those few words, I think now ensures that those places seem to us as very, very fitting Another, of course, were the words he chose from the Bible for what we call the stone of remembrance, a kind of a secular altar, a monument in our larger cemeteries. Their name liveth forevermore. 
And I think more than anything else, that really encapsulated what the Wargroves Commission was trying to do. So switching over to Peter, both the US and UK approaches were very egalitarian, you know, seeking equal treatment of officers, enlisted men, men of different races and so forth. Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, certainly. It's probably difficult for those of us who've grown up with remembrance of the war dead to understand what a revolutionary concept it was in 1917. In the very first minutes of the very first commission meeting, there is this wonderful line that talks about no distinction should be made between officers and men, regardless of their military or civil rank, their colour, their race, their creed, their religion. At the time, it caused a huge amount of fuss because it had practical considerations for the form of remembrance. It meant that the commission would use a headstone rather than a cross to mark the graves of the war dead because we were dealing with so many different faiths. But it also meant that the bodies of the dead would not be brought home. They would be buried where they fell in this kind of comradeship of death, equality of treatment. It was felt only the very wealthy could have afforded to bring their dead home, and that just wouldn't be right. So people got very, very cross that the commission seemed to be imposing, particularly on the people that had perhaps suffered most, you know, the mothers and the widows of the dead themselves. And we have some heartbreaking documents in our archive here in our headquarters in the UK, letters from grieving mothers who've lost three or perhaps even four sons asking us, please allow me, sir, to bring my boys home. And this forms a a central theme of our new online exhibition, which explores this creation of the organisation, but through the various stages of grief that people were going through at the end of the conflict. This question is to either of you. So we can start with you, Peter. What were some of the biggest challenges and dangers, frankly, in an undertaking of getting your war dead gathered, identified and honourably interred? Well, perhaps the biggest challenge was that nobody had ever done anything quite like this before. So there was no budget. There was no template from which to work. So even, for example, the decision that what do you do if you can't find or identify the body of an individual? Well, again, to us, it seems common sense. You put their name on a memorial to the missing. Yet that really was a decision that vexed the commission. There was talk about producing fake, for want of a better word, headstones in the military cemeteries. But Fabian Ware felt that would mislead people. So it's the practicalities of remembrance had to be worked through. And obviously, of course, the sheer scale, the British Empire was dealing with something in the region of 1.1 million war dead. Some of the challenges in some of those places, you know, there was still unrest, Turkey, for example, in the Middle East. And in France and Belgium, of course, this was a devastated landscape. We have some fascinating items in our archive, again, from the very early staff of the commission talking just how hard it was to live and work under those conditions. And we have some rather strange accents in the commission today, people who married into local communities and considered themselves Brits, but now have strong French or Belgian accents when they work for us. So it's an interesting thing that we managed to overcome. The building's program itself, to quote Rudyard Kipling, was the biggest single bit of work since the pharaohs, and they only worked in their own country. The last memorial wasn't finished until 1938. And then, of course, we had to do it all over again just one year later. The commission has cemeteries all over the world, including in areas of upheaval like Syria. How do you maintain all those graves and markers, especially considering the ravages of time, changing geopolitics, new conflicts and so forth? Well, I think it's important to remember that this work has been going on for 100 years. We had our centenary in 2017. And the Commission's Charter talks about perpetuity, that we will care for these places forever. And that makes it a very long game. There's conflicts and wars, changing environmental conditions, changing personnel. And of course, the disruption of the Second World War, another challenge of marking and maintaining graves in in many different areas from the First World War. 
from the remote jungles of Burma through to northern Russia, South America, you name it. We have cemeteries and memorials in 23,000 different places in over 150 different countries and territories. But the fact that the commission has the ability to look and plan for the long term is the critical thing. If there is a war, even if it takes 10 years to resolve, the commission was always able then to come back in slowly, diplomatically, start to reconfigure and, and maintain those places. You know, we're just starting at the moment to be able to go back into places like Iraq. You know, no grave is too far for our teams. And it's really important to us that nobody is forgotten, no matter whether they have a single grave on a remote island or whether they're in one of the big cemeteries on the Western Front. Are you now repatriating the bodies or are they still being buried where they fell? Well, our remit ended at the end of the Second World War. So our remit is to do with the war dead of both world wars. The policies of the British Ministry of Defence in particular have changed. The same is true of many of our Commonwealth partners. But for those war graves, even in remote places, our first priority is to try to maintain them as best we can, regardless of the difficulties. We have some fantastic teams all over the world doing that work. Some of them work for us on a contractual basis. Many of them are part of our family, and they have been for generations. It's a family business, and many of them feel it's a vocation. It's a personal duty to care for those cemeteries. And for us, that makes it a very, very special bond. And so when we bear that long game in mind, we won't be forgetting these places. And when the time is right and we can get people in safely, that's what we'll do. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming in. That's a wonderful program. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Dr. Glenn Prosser and Peter Francis are with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Learn more about the commission and their work at the links in the podcast notes. Because of the sheer number of individuals that served in the war effort, it's not surprising that the war had widespread and lingering effects on the psychological health of individuals and nations alike in the years following the end. Millions served in World War I, large segments of entire generations. And it's now ever more broadly accepted that nearly all combatants in war, even if they're not physically wounded, suffer trauma from the experience. To help us unpack the lasting marks of war, wounds, pain, and fear, we're joined by Joanna Burke, professor of history at Birkbeck University of London and the author of several books, including Dismembering the Male, Men's Bodies, Britain, and the Great War, and also Deep Violence, Military Violence, War Play, and the Social History of Weapons. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's really great being here, Teho. So, Joanna, one of your books is titled Dismembering the Male, Men's Bodies, Britain, and the Great War. That's pretty intriguing. Can you briefly outline that context for us? It is actually a book about literal dismemberment, as well as figurative and psychological dismemberment. So what I want to do in that book was to actually ask, how did British and American men and women actually experience war? So I was interested in the effect of witnessing acts of extreme cruelty, which of course left indelible scars, but also of inflicting cruelty on other people. Every day of the war, 5,600 men were killed. In Britain, there's major problems with physical dismemberment. 41,000 men had their limbs amputated during the war. 272,000 had other injuries to their legs and arms. 61,000 had wounds to their head or to their eyes. So it really changed the landscape of disabled people in Britain. But of course, I'm also interested in psychological trauma. 
You know, millions are being driven insane. The best estimate is about 20% of casualties were psychiatric casualties. So I was really interested in what happened when those people came back. And women, their mothers, their sisters, their daughters also had this sort of grenade lobbed into their life as a result of the war when their menfolk came home and they had to provide that emotional labor in trying to help them, trying to provide sustenance for these people. And heading to the psychological impact, and given that your focus is from a historian's perspective, not a medical practitioner, addressing what was called then shell shock and now known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, how was shell shock viewed socially in context medically? At the time of the war, the idea of trauma itself was actually really relatively unknown in the general public. With the First World War, shell shock became something that everyone understood and everyone knew about. It was actually invented in 1915 by a physician called Charles Mayers because he believed that the infliction, people breaking down in combat, was the result of literally a shell exploding nearby, causing shock waves that literally severed men's nerves. Others at the same time believed that men and indeed women who broke down in war actually had a predisposition to emotional instability. From the middle of the war, people started to observe, indeed Charles Mayers himself observed, that men were suffering from shell shock who had never been anywhere near the front lines. The idea started to change that, in fact, shell shock was a psychological problem, an emotional problem, rather than a physiological one. So they began to look for emotional reasons why this might happen. Now, of course, British society was a very hierarchical society. So there were distinctions made between different kinds of people who were suffering from shell shock. Lowly privates were generally thought to be suffering from hysteria, sort of womanish disorder. It was a form of cowardice. In contrast, when men of the officer class broke down in warfare, they were more likely to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder such as neurasthenia. If you were diagnosed as suffering from neurasthenia and anxiety disorder, you could lie on the couch. If you were diagnosed as suffering from hysteria or something, you could even be shot at dawn. So these were really important changes that happened in the course of the war. There's a lot of talk about the men and the suffering of cowardice, and they literally shot men for cowardice. What about the women who served? It's really been relatively recently that people have started to look at the experience of women in or near the front lines. In some aspects of war, actually, more women were killed than men. You do have cases of women who are serving as competents. I'm thinking here of a very famous British woman called Flora Sands and has written very eloquently at the time about the fact that as a woman, she had to prove herself precisely because she was a woman. If we look at the Russian army, over half a million Soviet women served in the Red Army, another 300,000 served in anti-aircraft and other forms of combat. This is not an insignificant number of women. But more typically, of course, women were serving as nurses. They were cooks, they did supply services, they drove cart trucks, looked after aircraft. Of course, after the war, their contributions were largely neglected. Indeed, even though 8% of the Soviet forces were women, and even though those women actually had a higher death rate than men, they were explicitly excluded from the victory celebrations. Typically, they were just simply forgotten or neglected. And that's only changed in very recent years. 
Well, with such a large segment of the population having served in the conflict, this trauma becomes kind of a sociocultural issue. How did it affect Great Britain at large? It had a huge effect on Great Britain. So many men came back disabled. A huge portion of women lost their husbands. You actually get, surprisingly, women marrying men who are younger than themselves for the first time. Prior to the First World War, at least in the elite class, you kind of knew who was going to take over. But of course, so many of those men were actually killed. So you get a change in social mobility. This is particularly clear in the case of women's lives, because, of course, during the First World War, they were able to enter forms of employment that had previously been closed to them. So you get a real shift of women, for example, into the civil service, into post office, into factory labor. You get massive increase in trade unionism of women, something like 160% increase. You get women having a much greater sense of personal freedom as a result of the war. And of course, we have the suffrage movement and a certain proportion of women actually getting the vote by the end of the war. So Fawcett, the president of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, made a famous declaration. She said something along the lines of the war revolutionized the industrial position of women. It found them serves and set them free. As a closing question, from your perspective and study, what would you say the single most important lesson as humans that we can learn from the legacy of pain and fear that World War I represented? I think if we really just kind of bear witness to the trauma of those years, I think we need actually to continue to be shocked by the shells that our factories still produce. And a few years ago, I wrote a book called Deep Violence, And that book looks at the extent to which military practices, technologies, military symbols continue to invade all of our everyday lives. We need to pay more attention to the fact that we are still producing those shells. We have a duty to future generations to ensure that we don't have another major world war, which is, in fact, not implausible. Joanna, thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Joanna Burke is a professor of history at Birkbeck University of London and author of many books and papers. Learn more about her and her work at the link in the podcast notes. When the guns stopped firing on the Western Front on November 11th, the Doughboys were probably really, really ready to pack up and head for home. But it wasn't going to be quite that simple as walking away, hopping on a ship and heading back to their own beds. So, to tell us about the process of returning home is Jonathan Casey, director of the Archives and Edward Jones Research Center at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. We're going to talk to him about that and an exhibit that he curated simply called Coming Home. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me on. So, Jonathan, the war ends and millions of American boys, men, and women are far from home. How long does it take for them to get home? And who gets to come home first? And who last? There are about 2 million who were overseas. And they were released by divisions. And a division was about 27,000. And the ones who were there the longest would go first. Okay, so once they arrive back on American soil, the soldiers don't just get to get off the boats and head home. What's the process like, and how long would it take for an average doughboy to get from the ship to his own bed again? 
Well, they came back through and then they had to be processed at a central processing station. And most of them were done also in the New York area. There were a couple camps that were on Long Island and they had to process them through the centers that were just to check them over and they checked them over physically and asked them a lot of questions and things. And so that could take some time. From my understanding, it's kind of a lot of the soldiers were just wanted to get out so fast that even if there was some type of medical issue that they had, they wouldn't necessarily be honest about it and just say, no, I feel okay and want to get out. And I don't know really how thorough the physical examinations were, but they were given a clean set of clothes so that they could wear them home. So they did have a uniform to wear home. And then they're shipped back to other camps in their geographic area where they're from to be discharged. And then they're sent home from there and they're given money to pay for their travel back to their hometown. They were kind of encouraged to wear the uniform actually for, let's say, six months or so and just to tell everyone that they had served. On the uniform, there was an insignia of a red chevron that was a discharge chevron. It meant that the person was honorably discharged. So that's how they kind of transitioned back into civilian life. How long did all that take from the time that they might take off from France to the time they actually got to their own beds? That might take about a month. If some of the units did parades, if they were involved in some type of a ceremony like that, would delay it for a few days. But if you were overseas and then came back on the ship and then back through this central demobilization center and then back to where you came from, the training camp in the area where you started from, I would say a month roughly. What was their reception like when they actually got back to their hometowns? It was all positive. Like, say, here in Kansas City, they had a pretty big parade. And you can imagine, like, New York and Chicago had these really big parades. As part of this exhibition that I did coming home, I had some photographs from a little parade, a little town in Weston, Missouri, which is about an hour, let's say, north of Kansas City. They did usually a victory arch. So that's what they would march through in the town. And then in Weston, Missouri, they put it up over one of the main streets there. In Kansas City, they did this big arch over Grand Avenue. So that would be a common thing to see. So you're getting parading like that and people happy that their relatives are back, their sons and their brothers and everybody returning home. Well, let's talk about the exhibit for a moment. So you curated an exhibit called Coming Home. Tell us about that a little bit. It was an exhibit that I did some time ago here at the museum in a building called Memory Hall. The ideas about how the war affected the soldiers and how they readjusted back into society. We use different kind of materials, mostly two-dimensionals, some of the director of the archives. And so a lot of posters and certificates, the certificates would be naming someone for his or her service from a particular state. So we had somebody was from Massachusetts and somebody was from Missouri. We had a series of small posters that were talking about ideas for how they could readjust back into civilian society and make a positive impact on society. That, to me, was one of the principal themes of it anyway. They were done by an Army officer named Gordon Grant. We also addressed in the exhibition those who were disabled and needed like vocational rehabilitation, again, illustrated through posters, and this is all from our collection. I somewhat addressed like PTSD about soldiers just not feeling quite right and not feeling the same. So in a way, that would be an example of having that disorder. There was a shift in the thinking about how to help veterans and if they had their special needs. The exhibition addressed that as well. And we talked about also the American Legion, which was created in World War I, and then what the Legion did for veterans. And it was advocating for benefits and for this bonus that came about for having served. 
And the Legion has a connection to our museum, which was at the time was created out of World War I in those early years and was called the Liberty Memorial Museum when it opened in 1926. I know the exhibition ran a while ago, but are some of those materials still available online? The exhibition was some years ago, and right now I'm actually working on kind of a reimagining of that exhibition on a smaller scale because it'll be in a different space here at the museum. But want to keep definitely the themes I was talking about, soldiers readjusting to society and being a role models for their communities and helping out in their communities. You can go to our website, which is theworldwar.org, under Explore tab and then Exhibitions, Past Exhibitions. So it's archived on our website. And we have a link to it in the podcast notes as well. Well, terrific, Jonathan. I thank you very much for uh, coming and telling us about it. Sure, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Jonathan Casey is the director of the Archives and Edward Jones Research Center at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. Learn about the museum, the exhibit, and more at the links in the podcast notes. Well, the story of the Hello Girls has really resonated during the centennial period. There is Elizabeth Cobb's book, Jim Theris's documentary, which, by the way, has just been announced as a winner for the PBS 2018 About Women and Girls Film Festival. Now, The Hello Girls is also an exciting new stage musical running in New York City. There may be men here who are ready to doubt We got the guts to cut the mustard As soon as we're in here They're gonna find out that when everything goes through And they're saying no another wonderful telling about these intrepid young women who served in the Signal Corps and were instrumental in the establishment of quick, effective communications across the fighting front. With us are the musical's co-creators, Kara Reichel and Peter Mills. Welcome to both of you. Hi, thanks for having us. Great to be here. So, Kara, the Hello Girl story seems to have struck a nerve. How did you come across it, and what motivated you to take the story onto the stage as a musical? Well, you know, I first heard the story in 2014. I was watching a documentary called Unsung Heroes, which was a history of women across various fields of the military, and the Hello Girls were a brief two-minute segment of that and of course, as someone who works in the field of musical theater in New York, a documentary called Unsung Heroes didn't take much for me to make that leap and go, well, maybe someone should sing about these remarkable women. About a year later, we sent it off to the NEA as part of a grant proposal. Unfortunately, the university residency didn't pan out, but the NEA did give us a grant to do some further research. We found out we got that funding back in the summer of 2017. And that pretty much boosted this project up to the front of our company's development process here in New York. So it's been an intensive journey of about a year and a half. We spent about six months digging into additional research. Luckily, Elizabeth Cobb's book came out shortly after we found out about this grant. And it's just been a real thrill to see how many people are responding to this story. And we are getting standing ovations every night at the theater. It's really touching a chord in people's hearts. And I think it's proof that this is an important story that needs to be shared. And it's also just a lot of fun. 
Pete's written some really wonderful songs. He and I collaborated on the book of the musical, which is basically the script and the outline and the structure. And he's written all the music and lyrics. And then I'm also the director of the piece. So to both of you, you just explained how you built part of the show. Did you have to fictionalize some of it in order to make the story come together? Or are you just going historically accurate? No, we've definitely taken some liberties in the interest of making the story as dramatically satisfying as possible and engaging for audiences. And yet at the same time, we're really trying to be true to the big picture of what these women did. So early on, we had decided that Grace Banker would be our main character. And I would say that we are largely faithful to Grace Banker's stories and the the details of it that we know in looking at the other characters, we have in some cases somewhat fictionalized the details of those characters. One of the characters we include is a woman named Louise Le Breton, who was among the women who served with Grace Banker, but was not among those who actually went to the front with Grace Banker. In our telling of the story, because we love Louise's character and there was a lot about her that we liked, we have included her in the group that goes to the front. There's another character named Helen Hill, who was among those who went to the front with Grace Banker, but we've taken certain details from other Hello Girls, Anne Atkinson, Cordelia Duque. We've made Helen into a... Uh, a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> but Helen Hill originally was from Connecticut, but we've taken some of her story and combined it with the story of... Um, a small town. A small town farm girl, girl. from Idaho. In some cases, we combined things and conflated things in order to get it all into the show. I think the other big area in which we've really fictionalized is the men. We were focusing on trying to get in as many of these interesting true life stories of the women as possible. So General Pershing does make a appearance in our show. He also plays the upright bass. All of the actors in our show pretty much play musical instruments as well. There's a fun joke about Pershing having to get back to the bass, but the main male character, Lieutenant Joseph Reiser, is mentioned in Grace Banker's diary and in Elizabeth Cobb's book, but we really have very little information on him. And so we've kind of made him a primarily fictional character um, who covers a lot of the different attitudes that they encountered. And then all the other men in the show play multiple different sort of characters who appear briefly in one or two scenes. But we did a lot more fictionalizing in terms of the male characters in the show. Now, the show's getting really good reviews, and I had an interview with Jim on the documentary. I asked him the same question. Tell us about the audience. Who are they, and how are they reacting? We're performing in a slightly under 200-seat theater on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's called 5090-59 Theaters, and they have a really strong audience base of members who come to see a lot of their shows, and many of them have said this is the favorite thing they've seen in many years there at the theater, but their membership base tends to be a little bit older patrons, and they've really been loving it, and I feel like they have a great appreciation for the history, and our audience base is really, I would say, a much younger demographic, a lot of people, artists who are in their 20s and 30s and their networks. And we've also been getting a good percentage of them and to see the show and they've been loving it as well. So I think younger audiences are really responding to the women's empowerment angle of the story. I mean, it's just a great story about some intrepid, amazing women who face some pretty significant odds. And of course, then there's the coda of how these women were treated by the government when they got home and the continuing fight that they had to engage in to have their service recognized on an equal basis with the men. 
So I think that story is very relevant and empowering and is something that everyone has been remarking on and great responses from all different types of folks walking through the door of the theater. A really important question for our listeners. How long are you going to be performing the show and where can people see it? And any plans for the future as well? Well, the show is running through December 22nd at 59E59 Theaters on Manhattan's Upper East Side. They can go to 59E59.org or prospecttheater.org, and it's theater with an E-R, the American version. Yeah, so we have about 20 more performances. We're a little over halfway through our run. A lot of people have been asking us about if we're going to be able to make a cast recording, which we would love to do, if we can figure out how to raise the funds for that. But yeah, we hope that we will be able to continue telling this story in some way, shape, or form on stages here in New York or around the country. A lot of people have also said, you know, you should really get this license so that colleges and schools around the country can also do it and have an artistic way of engaging with this important history and content. So we really hope that it's a story that will keep going from this premiere and be seen by many, many more audiences over the upcoming years. So a last question and a one-sentence answer. What would each of you say your own personal best lesson from this project has been? And let me start with you, Peter. What I learned from this show is to put story above everything and let that be your guide. And this was just such a wonderful story to tell. It came easily. And Kara, what about yourself? You know, I think one of the things that we haven't mentioned enough is the incredible cast who are bringing this show to life. As I mentioned before, they are also the musicians. These women, and in fact, all of those soldiers in World War One, by really trusting each other and working together, they were able to accomplish something very powerful and extraordinary. And I think the value of an ensemble and a team working together to achieve a goal, their work is just something that you shouldn't miss. So if you're in the New York City area, please come check us out. Thank you, guys. Thanks Thank so you. much. Kara Reichel and Peter Mills are the co-creators of the new musical, The Hello Girls. Learn more about the production and where you might be able to see it by following the links in the podcast notes. Peter Jackson, one of the most innovative film directors working today, had an idea. Using his craft and his genius, he wanted to create a time machine to transport those young men and boys from what we think of as a choppy, crude, black-and-white, silent world from a hundred years ago into the present. Of course, the world really wasn't black-and-white and silent. It was as three-dimensional and vibrant as your world is right now. So Peter Jackson led a team of artists, technologists, creators, and they took the hundred-year-old clunky silent film footage and brought it to life. The movie is called They Shall Not Grow Old. And you've never seen anything like it. I was 16 years old and my father allowed me to go. I was just turned 17 at the time. I was 16. And I was 15 years. When they came to us, they were frightened children and had to be made into soldiers. All right, boys, here it comes. We're in the pictures. <laughs> I gave every part of my youth to do a job. This remarkable work launches a new category of media I've been calling historical reconstruction, 
Or maybe it should be called VH for virtual history. Anyway, it's going to be playing on 1,000 screens over the holidays, but only on the 17th of December and the 27th. There's an afternoon and an evening show on each of those days in 2D and 3D. Now, I would say that every single listener to this podcast, do whatever you have to. Drive for two hours, make a road trip out of it, but go see this 90-minute documentary. You will be blown away. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll never forget when you first saw this. Tickets are available through Fathom Events, the guys that stream stage shows and special events and operas and entertainment into movie theaters. You've seen their previews. To find it, Google Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M, or use the link in the podcast notes. But book your tickets now. I had a special treat earlier this week when the project's supervising sound editor, Brent Burge, and I spoke. Now, he's in New Zealand and I was in L.A. Brent's been working with director Peter Jackson on a lot of his projects, including all the Lord of the Ring movies. And he had some great insight into the director's vision of this special film. Here's our conversation. I've had a long history with Peter, dating back to his first film, in fact, back in 1987, Bad Taste. Peter originally had a discussion with us back in 2015 about the show. He kind of got us in to come into the cutting room and have a bit of a chat because it was a new show he was looking at. It was an interesting discussion he had about the show at that point, actually, because the interesting thing I remember him talking about as he showed us the material was just how everybody looked really happy when they were kind of going to war. You know, the, the propaganda machine was kind of fully on. The cameras were out with all the men and women heading off to the First World War. And then there was just a stark contrast to the way they returned. It was like they were no longer aware of the camera. They didn't care about the camera at that point. It was much more grim in a way. It was a really interesting contrast that he pointed out at that point when he was obviously reviewing the footage. But of course, we thought we were going to start straight away on the show at that point, but it actually literally ended up taking another kind of two or three years for him to kind of push his way through it. You were starting with essentially a blank page as a sound editor for the project. You literally had to invent the entire audioscape for the scenes. It was all silent footage, right? There was absolutely nothing on the page in terms of sound for us at all. We do have a library from the UK of some original material, original tapes and so forth. But in terms of this footage, no, absolutely nothing. One of the things I think is really interesting is that you had to reconstruct what everybody was saying. How did that work? Peter had already identified the idea of how detailed he wanted this to be. And it was really about authenticity and about the whole going back into sounds which would have been sounds from the time. And that included the dialogue. There was a number of things about the dialogue which he really had identified, even at that point, of wanting to know what they were saying. So he really was very serious, even back in 2015, to get lip readers in to check out what was being said. Not only did we have the shots that Peter had selected that had to be fully replaced with sound, Foley, dialogue, crowds, the whole thing. Then one step back from that was the pretty much the backgrounds of the whole show. And then also you have a voiceover. Hundreds of hours of the stories that the old boys spoke about were distilled down into this project, which was originally only going to run 30 minutes. 
but obviously Peter had in the back of his mind, no, okay, yes, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to give you boys this footage, but you're just going to keep working your way over the dialogue here because I've got so much and I think I can actually make a feature out of this. And though we didn't know that for a long time, Peter would then hand over the material again and the fault would be okay. But then at the same time, Peter was also recutting the voiceover. So we had a tracking issue between having to track the picture changes that Peter made and as well as that, we then had to track all the voiceover changes that Peter made because the interviews were of completely varying quality and also had a noise floor, which was substantial. A lot of cleanup happened on the actual interviews themselves, which we didn't want to lose every time Peter handed the material back over to us. The picture and the voiceover were quite separate in the way Peter wanted to portray what was being talked about. What's interesting is in a lot of sort of standard dialogue replacement, you have one or two people, but you're dealing with a lot of crowds. Martin Clock was the dialogue super on it, and he was the one who had to actually literally drill into working out the whole plan of action around how do we approach the crowd. You have what is called walla, and you have broad effects crowds where, sure, you can get a sense of a crowd in a particular scene. And each of those different layers from the general effects crowd, which is more of a base layer, through to the walla, through to more discernible dialogue, which is where loop groups come in. All of them were absolutely key to get right because the authenticity would only come alive once you looked at it and were just completely at ease with the sound that was coming off the screen as being part of what we're seeing. And the effects crowds took some time to find because I have another person I supervise with and when he heard about the show, the absolute thing he said to us, you have got to get the accents right. There's absolutely no way that you could put this on the page for anybody who knows those people on screen or can recognize where those people are from on screen due to their uniforms or however it was and you're putting some New Zealand loop grouper trying to imitate an accent from some region in the UK. Well talk to me a little bit about the machine sounds, the explosions, the guns, the the tanks. Peter's a bit of an avid collector. He's got a passion for the First World War which you can hear in the show. So he has some artillery guns himself. We had an opportunity to record all the shells being loaded. He's got empty shells. We've been able to record a lot of the foley based around the guns. And as well as that, he has some contact with the army as well here. So occasionally they will just invite Peter to come up to Wairuru and that they're going to do a particular exercise that we might be interested in recording, which would be things like shooting off artillery shells in the middle of the desert. We have mountains in the middle of New Zealand where the road goes up onto the plateau and the army is based around these couple of mountains. And they do a lot of exercises there. And we have the opportunity to go and record it. That's where you get to really sense the way a gun sounds. When we arrived, the army guys said, OK, well, let's go out. We'll go out and scout the terrain about where we're going to be doing this. And guns will be shooting from here and they will be shooting over those foothills over there about nine kilometres away to a blast site on the other side. and just by the way, we're aiming for a rock. It took us 40 minutes to drive to the blast site where the shells were going to land. So we had about four people recording sound for it. Two people at the blast site, which included a bunker. The army person who was in charge of the operation was managing it from the blast site. So he could give them instructions about how far to adjust their registration of the gun. And then that was relayed 
to the gun site where me and, in fact, Justin Webster again were positioned, and we just laid out a bunch of microphones. They started shooting before we'd finished laying the microphones, mind you. So I think I had something in my pants at that point because I was literally just down in front of the guns trying to set up some mics, and they started without warning. They just started firing them off, and obviously they'd had an instruction to kind of start firing. So it was one of the most adrenaline-filled days but we still managed to get some great sound. The gun sounded fantastic. I'm incredibly excited by what you all and Peter have done. When you go back and you think about this project in five years and 10 years, what's the one thing you're going to remember the most? I think the thing I'm going to remember the most is the absolute vision that Peter had of how he was going to put this project together. It was such a personal project for him. I just think you can see Peter all the way through it. He knew exactly how it was going to work. It's all about what Peter put on the page for us to respond to. And we responded to it. And I think audiences are responding to it as well, because it is such a personal thing for him, I think, and passionate thing for him. I think that the methods that you're developing here are going to be used for all sorts of things. And the only thing I can say is thank you. We really do appreciate it out here. He's a kind of a one of a kind, that's for sure. That was the thing back in 2015 that Peter said. He said, I'm getting you guys to have a look at this because I'm going to put something together for this. It's going to be colorized, it's going to be 3D, and it's going to be an IMAX because I don't want people to feel they can just watch it on the History Channel. I really want people to get out of their houses and come and see it. It's an inspirational kind of thing that Pete often comes up with about just taking things out of the ordinary, if you like, and just making them extraordinary for the person to watch. Brent Burge is the supervising sound editor for the new Peter Jackson film, They Shall Not Grow Old. Google Fathom Events or follow the link in the podcast notes to get your ticket for the 17th or the 27th of December. This is a genuine holiday treat. And that wraps up our episode number 100, a fittingly great show. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. Dr. Glenn Presser and Peter Francis from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Joanna Burke, Professor of History at Birkbeck, University of London. Jonathan Casey from the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. Kara Reichel and Peter Mills, co-creators of the musical version of The Hello Girls. And Brent Burge, supervising sound editor for the new Peter Jackson film, They Shall Not Grow Old. Many thanks to Catherine Akey, my co-conspirator and the show's line producer. To Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team. To J.L. Michaud for his great research. This week, we sadly say goodbye to Rachel Hurt, our fall intern who really did a great job. Thank you, Rachel. Back to school with you. And I'm Teo Mayer, the show's producer and your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. For the past five years, we have inspired a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We've brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators and their classrooms. Now, we've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And now, with the armistice behind us, we'll be putting all of our focus and attention on one more key goal. With your help, 
we're going to be building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Go see www.cc.org memorial for more details. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and also the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn for Centennial News. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places you get your podcasts and even using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, you can keep the story of World War I alive in America by helping us build the memorial in Washington, D.C. Just text the letters WWI to the phone number 91999 and you'll see how. I'll nurse you, Frenchy. I'll fight the Germans while you fight Germany. If they ask who's helping thee, you can tell them we, we, we march on, march on, march on through Germany. Shoot all your bourgeois in Berlin, but you can save your la-la-la for me. So long.